Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph ben Murphy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, to clarify for the 37th time, I'm not actually a rabbi. I am an ordained spiritual counselor, but I'm not an actual rabbi. But if I was a rabbi, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. So that's as far as I want to clarify that. Had some great people on lately. Uh, really been enjoying myself. And for some reason, I've gotten myself into a Jewish groove. I mean, this show isn't about being Jewish. This is a show about people's spirituality and about their journey and, and all the rest of it. But it's not about being Jewish. And yet, you know, what it was, was the high holidays, the as we call them, the, the membership drive high holidays of any decent retail synagogue. Uh, but they are important and meaningful holidays if you treat them as such. So the Jewish New Year and the Day of Atonement, which are kind of bookends to a journey of self-reflection and what we call vidui, where you really take stock of yourself. And um, you have to figure out, you know, who do you love? What are you proud of? What do you regret? And uh, what do you want to be remembered for? And there's one part where we talk about this notion of who will live and who will die. And a, a rabbi friend of mine uh, in his uh, sermon, his Devar Torah, uh, during the holidays said, you know, there was a point in rabbinical school where I finally realized I was reading this wrong. It's not who will live and who will die. It's I will live and I will die. And I really love that because it was really about the renewal that we go through all the time, that there are versions of ourselves that we continually try to cling to and say, that's me. And then, you know, it's if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Um, and it's not you. You're not that person anymore. People don't see you that way. You stop seeing yourself that way. You go through something where you lose. There's grief. You know, the, the beautiful line, the price of love is grief. And you lose people and, and you have to go through that mourning for them. But we also do it with ourselves. We lose this. As we get older, we start to think of ourselves differently. The thing that we, was easy to do is no longer easy to do. The thing that we wanted to do is no longer the thing we want to do. I was talking to my neighbor yesterday. Um, he's a lovely man. And I wanted to give him, a, my wife and I wanted to give him a bottle of rum because he occasionally has a, a shot of rum. So I gave it to him and he said, you know, when I was in my mid-40s and 50s and still teaching full-time, I'd come home and I'd have a sizable shot of this stuff. And, you know, maybe later in the evening, I might even have a little more just to keep the stress down. He said, now I nurse a little shot of it for two hours and sometimes there's still something left in the bottom. And I love that because it was about, he had to come to terms with, I'm not that guy. So he lives and he dies and so do the rest of us. So that was a very... Uh, cathartic experience for me. And I, I ended up with uh, two different interviews with people who were Jewish. And today I'm going to make it three. So I'm on a roll. There's no doubt about that. Um, but even within that, there are so many shades, you know, uh, I put out a tweet a little while ago where I, I said something that a rabbi told me in my training once, which I loved, which was God's not Jewish. We're Jewish. And that takes all the exceptionalism out of it because I was, I wrote in the blog on my Facebook page for not that kind of rabbi that in a lot of orthodoxies in religions would be the Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever the orthodox error of that. There's this notion of exceptionalism. We weaponize our spirituality. We are the chosen people. 
you know, this is dangerous talk when you're trying to talk about unifying people as human beings, as mensches. You know, in a native tradition, that is the highest compliment. In the Jewish tradition, it's the highest compliment to call someone a human being. It's a process. You don't just have it because you're born human. You've got to become something. And I love all that. So I'm really been mushing that stuff around with this dangerous notion that's really surfaced for quite a while now. And I believe out of fear that we have to really dig in and really just say who we are and that other people aren't us and that we've got to do something to make sure that us survives. I think the whole movement of Proud Boys and all of that is a terrified white Christian nation and there was a black moderator of a program during the last presidential election who said it perfectly for me. He had a man on who was a white supremacist who was trying to pretend he wasn't a white supremacist. And it was a black host. And the host said to him at one point, he was a very fast talking host. He was very interesting. But he goes, he interrupts him and goes, excuse me, excuse me. I, here, here's what I think is going on here. You used to have an 80 yard head start and now it's only 30 yards and you're seriously pissed off about it. And the guy just looked at him and had nothing to say because really it was about losing the privilege and the advantage. And that's the, the little thing that's going on right now. I, I, I think in some ways the American Civil War never ended. They just called a truce on one level of it and then revisited it and have been revisiting it over and over and over again. The Jim Crow laws, the voter suppression. In Texas right now, they're trying to do voter suppression. I mean, these things are real. And we as Canadians in this context are certainly not immune to them. But underneath it all, I wonder where's the spiritual center for people? A non-weaponized spiritual center. One that allows people to, to, to see others as they see themselves, as sacred beings. I don't feel it. I, I, even spirituality has become spiritual materialism. You, at best, you shop for God. Which God do I want? You know, do I want the one I don't have to do any rules to? Do I, I want the one, a little Buddhism? Maybe I'll take a little of my original religion. Oh, look, that's interesting over there in the Hindu, you know. So we kind of put this buffet out there, this Trader Vic's kind of religion. <laughs> you go for the all you can eat and just a little of this, a little of that. Um, and what the high holidays do for me is every year they kind of slap me around a bit and go, come on, pay attention. Just try to ground yourself in here and then you can go running off in all directions badly, as they say. So those are some of my thoughts. There's somebody who has done a lot to, what should I say, um, preserve, encourage, promote Yiddish culture. And uh, I have to say Yiddish culture as a Jewish person for me is a pretty foreign idea because I'm a North African Jew. I'm a Sephardic Jew, not an Ashkenazi Jew. When people say, what's Ashkenazi? I say, well, to a lot of people, it's Fiddler on the Roof. That's Ashkenazi Judaism to them. My Judaism, which is grounded in the Arab world, is an entirely um, interestingly different thing. Because when we came to Canada, Jewish people who we would meet, because only 3% of North American Jews are what I am, a Sephardic Jew, would say to my parents, you don't speak Yiddish? And God love my father for not turning around and going, well, it doesn't come in really handy in North Africa to speak Yiddish. It's not a, a great currency to have. 
<laughs> but instead you go, no, actually, we speak Spanish. We're, we're a little different. And that was that. But this man, this man speaks Yiddish. <laughs> and that's it for the interview. We're done. That's it. Shalom Aleichem, you know. Yeah. 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 So Michael Wax has written, um, uh, how many books have you uh, written so far? Um, seven? Written or published? No, published. Uh, published seven or eight. Uh, yeah. Rhapsody and Schmaltz is one. That's, that was the most recent Rhapsody and Schmaltz. And, and the one that catapulted you to the top of the bestsellers list was Born to Kvetch. Born to Kvetch, that's right. Kvetch is complaining, I guess. Yeah. Um, how are you, Mr. Wax? I'm well, thank you, Ralph. It's good to good to see you and to be here. Uh, I I found the high holidays a little weirder this year than normal. As uh, I'm not technically a member of any synagogue, although I do, especially on on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I always go. But of course, with social distancing, etc., and limitations on numbers, I was completely shut out. So I basically spent them at home, uh, davening, you know, going through all the prayers, etc. And I, I came from an Orthodox family, so I know what you're not supposed to do unless you have ten people there, right. etc. And it's remarkable how you can cram a full day's synagogue attendance into about sixty minutes without <laughs> actually skipping anything. <laughs> and taking your time at it. It's, it's yeah. really quite staggering. But so you do show up usually on high holidays. What compels you to go to yeah. synagogue if the rest of the year you don't? Uh, I think that's mostly the rather self-absorbed idea that I'll be even more uncomfortable not going than I would be if I went. It would just be too weird. And I once, through no fault of my own, was uh, one previous time I was much younger, but I was actually unable to go one year. And I felt terrible just not being there. I had a perfectly, mm. I was sick. I had a perfectly valid excuse. Right. Uh, I wasn't 100% bedridden, but I couldn't leave the house. And it was just, it was so depressing. I mean, it's like those things you read in the, you know, the regular newspapers about people alone at Christmas time and right. they have nobody. Uh, and it wasn't that I had nobody. It's just that you're not going to shul. We don't want anything to do with you. Uh, you know, you, you sort of took yourself out of that giant communal thing. You know, Judaism is not really one of those religions that is heavily geared to solitude. Uh, no. There are a few, there are some strains in it. There are Brestle of Hasidism, which encourages a certain amount of alone time with God on a daily basis. But again, that's, you know, you have your hour with God, and the rest of it is you need 10 people to do just about anything. You know, the which keeps the community together, right? I yeah, mean, oh, absolutely. It's, it's the it's core. Communal, yeah. yeah, it's a communal thing. Uh and we're we're not a brick and mortar civilization because you know it's a you're always on the move in yeah. one way or another. Yeah, no, not not in the least. I mean, one of the amazing things that uh, 
happened inside of Judaism was a couple of thousand years ago when the temple was destroyed, you had a shift in the whole way that the religion functioned. Because up until then, up until the destruction of the second temple, Judaism was completely place obsessed. Yeah. You know, where the whole thing was, you, you not only have to go to Jerusalem, you have to go to the right part of Jerusalem where the temple is, and the sacrifices in that temple were probably 90% of the religion. And to rejig it after you no longer had that, you know, in uh, at the time of the destruction of the temple, which is around the year 70, people seriously thought this religion was finished. They couldn't imagine how they're going to get around that uh, you know, location centrism, if you want to call it that. And all the stuff that we've all been complaining about ever since, it's like, what do you mean I got to do this? What do you, you know, a lot of that was deliberately put into place to substitute for the, the temple service. You know, if you look in the Bible, it doesn't say go and dove and go and pray here and you have to stand there and listen to a rabbi give a three-hour speech. It says, you know, you show up on this holiday with, you know, two bullocks and, and a ram or something, and you hand them over, and that's what you need to do. And there was a hereditary priesthood yeah. that ran all of that. Uh, and did it for you. Which yeah. sometimes, in you the modern, to, yeah. sometimes in the modern era, you, I remember going to Ashkenazi synagogue as a kid regularly for Hebrew school and Saturday yeah. services. We didn't have a Sephardic uh, Hebrew school in the early 60s. Right. Um, so I went to Beth Shalom Synagogue in downtown oh. Toronto. But the, the main sanctuary was a presentation. You know, the cantor had an uh, opera voice. Yeah. Everything was done for you. You just sat in the chair and had somebody perform. So it was, an, yeah, to well, me, it's almost like an attempt to recreate that, don't worry, we'll do it for you kind of attitude. Well, there, there is that. That's more, I think, in, I guess, less strictly orthodox. Yes. You know, you know conservative, reform. I'm, I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying they're more influenced. It was more of a big box by, kind of presentation. Yeah. Uh, there are some Orthodox synagogues like that too, but the, the smaller ones, which are the ones that I grew up in, uh, if you had a rabbi on premises or who was hired, you were already doing, you were doing well, you know, quite often the person leading the services was just, uh, whoever bullied their way up to the front. (laughs) You know, the guy with the guy with the sharpest elbows would usually yeah. win. Hit the beam. Uh, yeah. Uh, Let me ask it, you something. It was a little different. I want to ask you So Sure. Sometimes I just go back to first principles. And in this case, when you say God, what does that mean to you, that word? Uh, it's the kind of question I dread because I, I have no answer. You know, uh, uh, Maimonides. You know, who was uh, a, a great Moroccan himself uh, sure. via Spain? Uh, he said, "You know, you can't even imagine God. All you can do is, if you say things about, you can say positive things about God, but only to avoid saying negative things. You know, there's no way God is so far above 
the human that we just can't perceive what you can't even say he you know what right. what it might be it there's no qualities there that we have the intellectual or emotional capacity uh even to perceive let alone to understand but is there a basic premise yeah. that there is an intentional oh oh yeah creative absolutely. force oh, oh, in the oh, universe totally. and you believe that oh to- yeah i guess uh you know, particularly every time. No, there's I people cough. who think it's random. No, you know? look, every time I cough during a pandemic, my, you know, my faith index goes up a little bit. Uh, you know, I, th- I think I think the real. My father used to joke. You know, you could tell, especially going by non-orthodox synagogues on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, especially on Yom Kippur, uh, he would look at the parking lots, <laughs> and the fuller the parking lot was. The worst business was that year. The, right. the emptier the parking lot is, you know, you didn't need God. You could go to work and make money right. or whatever. And people got scared. They would revert back. But uh, there are people who argue that's that's the problem is that it's, uh, you know, no atheist in a foxhole. But if you don't happen yeah. to be in the foxhole, who cares? You can well, just, you yeah, can just I, go about your business. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to to run your life, but I think it's pretty common, uh, particularly, you know, outside of faith communities of, of whatever, you know, of whatever religion, where people perform different whatever religious rituals as a matter of course, as a matter of their day-to-day yeah. lives. You know, this is, and, you know, this is what happened with Judaism is, uh, especially over here, that is in North America, in Western Europe after a while, uh, starting, I guess, in Germany, you came more and more to the church of your choice, go once a week model. Whereas previously, it had just been like this all-encompassing total way of life. You know, when I was a kid, I used to, I would like, because I grew up speaking Yiddish at home, I could read like Yiddish books. And I'd read these Yiddish novels uh, about you know Jewish criminals in the old country, and th- there's a lot of these books. Uh, so, and you know there was a large Jewish criminal class, uh, but in the books I couldn't get it. You know these guys, you know gang of thieves. They get up in the morning. What is the the first thing they do? They wash their hands in a ritual manner, put on their prayer shawl and phylacteries, and they daven. They pray. Then they take off the prayer shell, they take off the phylacteries, they have something to eat, and they go out and steal a few horses or beat a few people up until it's time for the afternoon prayer service when they stop doing all of that, daven, and go back to being criminals. I couldn't figure it out for years. It's like, what kind of hypocrites Well, are I, these I, I, all I'm thinking about is the godfather uh, and this, uh, and the scene in, in Godfather Two with the, the mass and the Catholic Church, and the oh, people, uh, all, all the mean, leaders of the of the different families getting killed by oh yeah at the end of, at the end of one yeah during the during the baptism yeah and yeah and, and there's faith is in is located in loyalty to family, not Fair, in yeah in, well, here, in yeah universal ideas of compassion and kindness. Yeah, and what I was, yeah, I guess, you know, what I was talking about was more, it's, 
why did they get why did they do all this stuff you know they they would only eat kosher food so why uh, did they because that's what a jew did that was like how you lived if you were jewish if you didn't do that you know and this is a while ago anyway you know 19th century early 20th century if you didn't do that particularly in eastern europe you removed yourself from the larger community and you were you were nowhere you know there was no question at the time like here in you know in the cultural milieu in which we live and which was more common in western europe uh it's really easy to assimilate right i can stop you know i can stop keeping kosher i can stop going to the synagogue i don't have to fast on yom kippur and nobody cares i'm still considered jewish uh but i can blend in yeah you couldn't blend in in right poland russia romania hungary wherever at the time uh without you know the only way you could bend in was actually converting to or going into the larger urban centers because by the by the turn of the century warsaw krakow Places like that, a German Berlin, people could no, could Berlin in, get into power so. circles. Because you got to remember, until really until the Russian Revolution, Jews in the Russian Empire, which you know includes most of Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, etc., they didn't have full civil rights, which they did in uh, in Austro-Hungary. Right. To a much larger degree anyway, and especially in places that, you know, now like, you know, Vienna or uh, Hungary, particularly, you know, places like Budapest, uh, where they could kind of function in the larger society. It was much more difficult. Let me ask you uh, this. Do you, do, you, do you think. Do you think that. The Jewish psyche, the gener- intergenerational trauma, the Jewish psyche, do you think that the, there will always be a thing about imminent danger? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, at this point, I think partly it's just built in, you know, to the psyche because of various things that have happened. Uh, partly because, you know, if you have any connection with the traditional and I'm using that in a very wide sense, traditional uh, modes of Jewish thought is, you know, the the central event is the destruction of the temple. The fact that, you know, we're living in a world where we have lost something that no matter what we do, we ourselves are not capable of restoring. You know, there's not supposed to be a temple, sacrifices, uh, the ingathering of the exiles. That's only going to happen when the Messiah comes. Which and, dovetails, unfortunately, with the evangelical prophecies of the return of Jews to start well, the tribulations into the apocalypse. Because well, except then, then that, their Messiah comes back. But their Messiah is going to get all of us to convert to Christianity and those of us who say no are cast into everlasting fire. So I can start to eat shellfish is what you're going to do. Uh, well, you could. Look, according <laughs> to the New Testament, 
you know, <laughs> this guy, somebody appears to St. Peter in a dream with like a poo-poo platter and says, <laughs> no, St. Peter says, yeah, but it's trace. It's <laughs> not kosher. <laughs> and what does he say to Peter? He says, take and eat. Right. Uh, Which so, to me is one of the things that I, I grew up kosher. I'm vegetarian now, so it's moot, but um, I grew up kosher. And it, to me, I always had this little thing in me that said, you know, I'm giving part of the planet a break here. Like, there's all these things I can't eat, so I can't, they don't need to be killed for my edification. All these shellfish, pork, you know, I can't do milk and meat together. Every restaurant you go into, all there is is milk and meat and everything, you know. So I won't have all those things. I'll have the salad. I'm good. Uh, yeah. So there's this sense of restraint, which also comes up in, in the fasting days in, in the religion. Yeah. And in all religions, yeah. there's always well, again, this sense of restraint. Yeah, because the, the ultimate idea here, and this also is Maimonides, he says, like, what, the proper attitude is not like, ooh, he's eating bacon? You know, that's a ham sandwich? Fair, horrible. What a terrible thing. I would never touch that. This, according to Maimonides, is like, this is low level. This is, you know, your Homer Simpson, if you think like that. <laughs> uh, the idea is you're supposed to look at it and go like, man, that looks great. I really, really want that. But my father in heaven says no. And that's more important to me. Uh, you know, doing the will of the being that has brought me into being is more important than immediate satisfaction of my own desires, no matter how powerful that desire. So Ramadan, 40 days of, of restraint during the day between sunset and sunrise. It's a beautiful yeah, thing. Well, that's, you know? that's a, that's and yet a our, long our society is, is so not interested in restraint. It's almost beyond comprehension. <laughs> like, look at this pandemic. You're not, you know, screw you. Nobody tells me what to do. Yeah, well, that I mean, I, I don't need this mask. I'm better than science, which is still, which is also the climate crisis. I'm better than that. Yeah, and and there's this. I always feel that that we're in a situation where we have created for ourselves a sense of our own, and I don't mean this in the in the right way, in the wrong way, godliness that we are God, and that this place is to serve us until it's finished, and we will overcome everything because we are gods. You know, we now walk the earth and, and reimagine it in our own image as much as we possibly can. I don't even think it's we're gods. I think it's I'm God. That's what I, I mean. I am like God and you're shit. You know, yeah, I you am don't, God. You, you don't matter, though. That's that's the most. Well, I, I look, at, look at the narcissism of the president of the United States. I am God. Well, that's, you know, it's. Uh, Only I can solve this. What know? was that Chris Christopherson song? Uh, Jesus was a Capricorn. Oh, yeah. Says, you know, everybody's got to have somebody to look down on. Uh, that's that's, <laughs> that's pretty where we're much at? it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. Uh, I'm worried. Like, is that where we're at? It seems to be. I, you know, it's, I don't know if it's any worse than it ever was. Right. But of course, the possibilities of disseminating it uh, are a lot better than they used to be. And the technologies to do something vile about it are much more yeah. comprehensive. Yeah, that's, that's basically what I meant. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so we're in that, but you got to wonder. So when you work as hard as you do to keep alive a language and a culture, the Yiddish culture and Yiddish kite, as it's called, um, 
I say to people occasionally that being a Jew is kind of an act of spite, right? You, you, it's just like, you know, you're, you're not, first of all, I'm not going to just drop the ball now after all this. And secondly, you can't tell us that we don't have a right to exist. Is that part of what animates your passion for the culture? Uh, partly. Well, you know, it was mostly my fear, uh, you know, not that I have any exalted notions of what I can do, but after about a thousand years, this thing was starting, you know, this thing like Yiddish was starting to go away. You know, it was really, it was vanishing. And at least for those of us, you know, from an Ashkenazi background, this is the, you know, it, this is what determined really who we, that is Ashkenazim, uh, who we are and how we think, you know, so much of, and, you know, and I know this bugs the hell out of, out of people who aren't Ashkenazim, that, you know, ideas of what is Jewish humor or Jewish food, you know, Jewish this, Jewish that, is basically uh, what they mean as Ashkenazi. Yeah, in you know, North America, not, yes. Yeah, it's not a universal thing. It's not uniform across the Jewish world. And in fact, there is much more variation between or among the different non-Ashkenazi Jewish communities, even inside you know, Sephardim in Yugoslavia right. live very differently from Sephardim in Morocco right. or something. Uh, whereas Ashkenazi culture, yeah, there were differences. But basically starting, starting in France and moving all the way into Russia, you had, uh, you know, it was one large cultural unit. There were certainly regional variations and stuff, but, um, you know, the language, the way of thinking, the kinds of educational system that had sprung up uh, were pretty much the same. Tell me about the way of thinking yeah. part, because, you know, there were all these phrases in Yiddish that really... You, a person would have to really unpack because they don't seem to make any sense. Yeah. You know, it, you know the parody of it would be, you know, don't touch a chicken with butter. Right. You know, put your spoon yeah. in a hat. You yeah, know, and, no. I, and I always think, what are don't, these people talking about? But yeah, don't you, knock me a tea kettle. I was going to try it. Don't <laughs> ah. All I got was don't hock me in China. Is that yeah. even close to being correct? Uh, it's close. I yeah, missed a few words close. in there. I mean, look, the other part of this is as somebody who's not from that, like, you know, there's a Jewish festival in Toronto, the Ashkenaz Festival. And I always took great offense to that. I, oh, I, I remember I, I, was, I was the one who named it. <laughs> yeah, well, I took great offense because for me it was but, like, oh, I see. That's what being Jewish is. Jewish music is, is, is yeah, Ashkenazi music. Well, you see, it was music. supposed to be Yiddish. You see, the idea was it was a festival of Yiddish music and culture, at least to start with. Well, it, it certainly and, never grew into that. And that's what it was, at least for a good few years. Yeah, but for us, there, like you got to know uh, that for us, we came to Canada and we were invisible. Now, no, I, I, in later I years, I really that. appreciated that because <laughs> it, it, no, seriously, because in Israel, we were not invisible. We were just the lower class. We were the, the pond scum of Judaism, straightening our hair and pretending we were white and doing all those things for for 
the edification of the Eastern Europeans who ran Israel. It was their idea, not ours. Yeah. We were just livestock. You, you could fit in there. But here, nobody knew who we were. Nobody wanted, we were never invited to be in any associations or do anything with the rest of the Jewish community. But it was, in, in many ways, a bit of a godsend because there was no, it wasn't the same prejudice that my relatives in Israel were suffering when they were, uh, when they left Morocco in exile. So yeah. it, it's an interesting, you know, I, I, I did a panel once at Ashkenaz of Sephardic performers who were talking about their experience of being uh, Sephardic Jews in Israel. And they're the ones who had stories about running to the radio, running home ahead of their friends to make sure their mother turned off the radio before their friends arrived because mother was playing Arabic music on the radio because mm. that's where she was from and of straightening their hair because there were too many kinks in their hair, right? Because they had Arab blood in them the way what? Eastern Europeans have Christian blood in them, you know? So yeah, but, it was it's very interesting. Israel also, you know, for the longest time had a very negative attitude towards Yiddish. Yes, uh, well, wasn't you know, uh, Ben Gurion that it was the slave language, and we don't want to keep pretty it. much, yeah. And I, you know, a guy like uh, one one of the big Israeli come Yiddish comedians who'd come uh, after the war from Poland and from some time in the Gulag as well, uh, Shimon Jigan, who, if you were like a Jew from Poland in the '30s, he was kind of you know the Bob Hope right. of of that era. I mean, that's how well known he was. Uh, he had to go on, he staged a hunger strike. This is in the late 60s, I believe, in order to be allowed on Israeli television, or in order to be allowed to speak Yiddish on Israeli, on Israeli television. Wow. And, you know, there's all these stories about people walking down the street speaking Yiddish, and they, people would just yell at them, you know, Goy, da you right. know, Goy, speak Hebrew. Right. Uh, That's like so, uh, Quebec with... Uh, French people going into Eaton's or Simpsons and being told to speak white. Right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that was, there was that extreme Shlilutha uh, Gola, you know, dissolution of the diaspora mentality in Israel that operated in both directions, you know, towards Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Uh, of course, it was being run for the most part by Ashkenazim. Yeah, uh, you know, ninety percent anyway. Uh, you know, no que no question about that. Uh, but again, the the importance of Yiddish to that culture, though, was such. You know, again, you say, that, "How can you be Jewish if you don't speak Yiddish?" Yeah. Uh, you read things like you know Primo Levi's uh, memoirs about you know being in Auschwitz, and he talks about like. Greek Jews coming in, you know, being shipped in and not lasting very long because they couldn't speak Yiddish. And Yiddish was, of course, the lingua franca of, of the concentration camps, you know, amongst the prisoners. Right. Just because of who was there. The inability to speak Yiddish could have cost you your life. Uh, you know, and there were cases later in the war when uh, the Nazis began deporting people from Hungary, which didn't start happening until, I think, 1944, uh, much of the Hungarian Jewish community by that point had assimilated to a considerable degree. And even many of the more Orthodox people had assimilated linguistically. So they spoke Hungarian rather than Yiddish. 
And I know, I mean, off the top of my head, I can count a dozen people that I know of Hungarian Jewish background whose parents, particularly their mothers, learned Yiddish in concentration camps uh, rather than at home before the war. And I know the survival. Yeah. And the most of the people I'm talking about are also like extremely, extremely religious, either Hasidim or very close to it. And most of the people, people I know my age, you know, baby boomers, uh, many of them grew up speaking Yiddish with their fathers and Hungarian with their mothers because their mothers were still more comfortable in Hungarian if they had fathers who had been that orthodox before the war. So the fathers would have studied in, you know, in yeshivas in traditional schools where in a lot of cases, the language of instruction was still Yiddish. So let me Um, ask you something. What, what would happen if Judaism withered on the vine and disappeared? Yeah. Would the world be any worse off? Yeah, but it might not know that. Uh, In what way would it be worse? It might not. Uh, you know, I think some of the the general cultural contribution. First, I think of any group uh, with you know certain political exceptions were to vanish off the earth. Everybody is going to be impoverished uh, to some degree. Again, whether they're aware of it. Uh, or, or they're not aware of it. But you look at, you know, some of the ideas that have come in, you know, they've basically become mainstream more through Christian adaptations of them. But uh, the, the whole morality that we at least pretend to believe in and to uphold basically comes out of, you know, comes out of the Old Testament uh, much of you know the that peculiar Jewish way of thinking, which ultimately, and it's pretty ultimate in most cases these days, but ultimately grows out of a Talmudic mindset. Uh, the kind of approach to problems, to solving a problem, that you'll find in the Gemara in the Talmud, which is not necessarily, you know, you don't go A to B. You go like A to Q and then maybe back to L, which reminds you of Z, which takes you to C, but then what about D? Eventually you get to B. Uh, But it's not always the straightest line because the straightest line, the, the shortest distance between two points is not necessarily the best way to go always. Uh, and I think you'd, you'd miss a lot of that. Uh, you know, that would, you know, I I don't want to go through one of those, well, if you don't like Jewish people, you should stop doing this and stop doing that because that was invented by a Jew. Right, right. Uh, That's the exceptionalism. That's, yeah. And that's, you know, that's great that there's all these, you know, Jewish Nobel Prize winners. That's always the argument, you know. Per capita. Yeah, where would would we be without Al Jolson? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's it, yes. Well, you see, you can see it in uh, in Germany. You know, and I'm talking now 
you know, contemporary Germany, Poland, uh, places like that, particularly post-Warsaw Pact, uh, where there is this, you know, relatively large interest in Jews and Judaism on the part of people who are not themselves Jewish, you know, people from those places who sort of, you know, realizing what had happened uh, during World War II and how many Jews there had been, you know, particularly in places like Poland, uh, real, you know, they, they get into it, they start looking into it, and they themselves, as non-Jewish Poles or Germans or Romanians or Hungarians, say, you know, oh, you know, our culture, the, just the general culture of the place has lost so much uh, with the loss of the Jewish population. And then you have, then you have Americans uh, at a, a race conflagration mess yeah. riot, who, 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 you know, white supremacists saying Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. You have Henry Ford who believed that jazz was the invention of Jews uh, manipulating uh, African-Americans yeah. to uh, take over the, the country. And Ford, you know what he did in response is he created square dancing associations. And if you think about it, there's nothing more white Christian than square dancing. There's a reason to call it square, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 37, 37 states still have as their official dance square dancing because you poured tons of money into that. I mean, and, and yet, you know, there's the Guru uh, subway station in Montreal about a, a cleric who was anti-Semitic. Oh, yeah. So these, like... Well, this, you know, th this is again where... It's a tough one because you don't wanna, want to end up defensive and, 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 no, and saying they're, you're out to get us. And, but it's one tough. of the great, well, one of the great things about Judaism in general is almost any theory about anything that anybody has ever come up with falls apart when you try and apply it uh, to the Jews. You know, it, it seems to be the, the outward limit of where general rules apply. Give me an example of that. Uh, um, something like, okay, we all need to be sensitive to everybody. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, people want to choose their pronouns, et cetera, et cetera. It was, you're mentioning Lionel Gru that, that yeah, yeah. reminded me of this. Uh, I, you know, I myself, like, I guess churches scare me. Sure. I've been inside them, uh, generally unwillingly, sure. and very rarely for religious service, but I have. Uh, the idea that, you know, there are, there are certain things you shouldn't say, you shouldn't do in public, you got to watch out for other people. I mean, if I were to, if I were to say that, you know, I find the fundamental notions of Christianity abhorrent and I don't want to have to hear them or see them or look at them and I don't think they should have crosses on display where they can be seen in public, people would think that I was insane and I probably would be uh, the idea that, but you know, when you start canceling things and people, 
you know, look at the history of Western culture. You're going to cancel everybody who ever said anything bad about the Jews. You're not going to have very much left. I, I, I'm serious, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I was, you know, my actual education uh, in grad school had nothing to do with any of the things we're talking about. I was a medievalist doing like non-Jewish right. medieval literature. And one of the reasons I, I, I couldn't take it anymore after a while because just the gratuitous anti-Semitism that would sometimes come up in things is like, you're reading something and, you know, yeah, okay, this is all right. And the guy is talking about whatever. And then, by the way, fuck the Jews, you know, and it's, and then keep going. Uh, And it's like, wait, so I'm spending my life making these guys look good. Right. And they wouldn't even consider me human. Right. Uh, What an odd thing we do to each other. But, and again, you know, many of these are worth, you know, you take that little bit out and these are people with some, you know, who did something very worthwhile. Okay. So here's the tougher Uh, one. I'll give you a tougher one. You get a country finally next year in Jerusalem, which you say every year in the holidays is actually true. You're there. You have a wall even that, that you can worship at that wall or or worship or worship at. And then there's another wall to make sure nobody gets in to that wall anymore. But then I always remember Gwyn Dyer, who's one of my favorite commentators. Right. Dyer uh, did a series called War for the CBC. Uh, yeah, I remember ago. That. It was yeah. fantastic. I, w- I wish I could find it again. But at one point, he's in the northern part near the Golan and he's, uh, in Israel, and he says, the problem with getting a state is that if you really want to keep it, you have to be willing to kill other people. <laughs> yeah. And, and he had a very dry way of saying that, but he was very, it was very true. And now we see ourselves in a, in a different way through this country mm-hmm. that is there. And the diaspora gives you a certain gift of grafting yourself onto different civilizations and cultures and, and being enriched by them as a nomadic people. But now it's about the root and the planting of the flag and the protection yeah. of the people and the exceptionalism and the movement away from others and the oppression and, and all the pieces that you, you're so amazed that this is where it's at. So is it be careful what you wish for? Is that where we're at? I think to a large degree, yeah. And I, I think also, you know, there's a reason and a very strong reason that so much of the Jewish world was pre-World War II not all that keen on political Zionism. Uh, yeah, it was a popular movement, but it was by no means universal. And of course, the two ends, the two extremes that rejected it most uh, conclusively uh, were the, you know, the extreme left, where you know it's Communist Party kind of, you know, workers of all countries, belong together you know national boundaries like this are crap and it's just a class thing and the ultra ultra orthodox uh who basically thought this is pushing what should be uh um a messianic uh, possession is the wrong word you know this is yeah you know you're anticipating something that you don't actually have the power to bring about that is the redemption 
Right. And, you know, even mainstream, middle-of-the-road Zionist orthodoxy wrestled with this for a long time. You know, the prayer for the state of Israel that you'll hear in most synagogues, uh, it starts off, you know, reshit smichat gulateinu, the beginning of the blossoming or sprouting of our redemption. That is, this is the the prelude to redemption. Like even they don't actually go so far as to say, you know, we're here, we're staying, get used to it. Uh, I think things have moved well to the right in practice uh, since, since that prayer was written. And, it's, so is it a gift or is it a curse or is it both? You know? I think it's what you said, you know, be careful what you wish for. You know, certainly there, there was a diaspora nationalist movement, and there still is, but it was at one time much stronger. Uh, and the whole idea, you get this especially, uh, particularly with uh, the, the left wing of the, of the Yiddish world of what's called uh, duikite, hearness, that is, we're going to make a Jewish life in the country in which we find ourselves. And this made a lot more sense before 1939 or before 1933 uh, than it does, you know, subsequently Mm -hmm. in that you could at least convince yourself that you were able to do that. You know, I think the one thing that we've all walked away with and not just Jews uh, from from the Holocaust is this can happen to anybody, anywhere, anytime. Nobody needs a good reason to do it, and nobody's going to help you, depending on who you are. You know, and we've seen it in our own lifetimes. Sure, Rwanda, uh, Cambodia, Rwanda. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's the same examples. Pardon me, the same examples exactly that I would have given. Uh, it's going on now. You know what's happening in in parts of China, uh, the Uyghurs with the Uyghurs, yeah. Um, and yeah. what's anybody doing? Oh, isn't that terrible? You know, uh, I'll check what I buy at the dollar store to make sure it wasn't made in China. I don't know. Uh, well, there's you know uh, there's the old piece of the guy sitting on the bench with Jesus and saying, you know, how could you let these things happen? You know, God, how could you actually let a Holocaust happen? How can you let people attack each other and do all these awful things? And uh, Jesus says, you know, it's funny. I was just about to ask you the same question. (laughs) Because, you know, it's us, really. It's it's us and our fallibility and our fear and scarcity drives of some sort or another is the driving motivation coupled with non-stop consumption as which also animates ina- inadequacy the only way you can yeah, sell somebody something is if they don't have enough that car is not quite the right car you need this car yeah. right <clears throat> so when you do stuff like that you end up with people afraid that they're never going to have enough and moving away from the gratitude and the wonder and awe of a spiritual life into a life that is much more about Stuff. I mean, one of the largest businesses in North America is storage, mm-hmm. right? Storage, for God's yeah. sake. <laughs> that's how ridiculous we've become. A lot. A lot. Yeah, no, and this, you know, I think to, to go back to what you were saying about, you know, the situation in Israel or the Middle East in general is, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a no-win situation. 
in in many ways in that no side is completely willing to acknowledge the uh, the claims the the rights the the pretensions whatever of the other one and as long as you have that kind of that kind of impasse you know there's it's not insane for an israeli to say i'm afraid that you know if things shift only very slightly we will all be murdered or driven into the sea because there are certainly people right. that are prepared to and would be happy to do that on the other hand you have a whole lot of people who need places to live and i'm pretty sure uh, you know i don't like to speak for for anybody but uh, you know i'm pretty sure that uh most of the people who have been displaced uh who are now living you know having to go through checkpoints you know there are all these palestinians i'm sure most of them would just like to have the kind of lives that yeah. any regular person in any regular place absolutely has and to be assured of some some Everybody security like that yeah. nobody's going to come and kick you out right. nobody's going to you know force you to move or destroy your house whatever uh and, right so you know, I, I have I, think, I have a I have a on prime right now a series i did a few years back called my israel Mm. And, and I spoke to everybody I could. And when I got on the plane after two and a half weeks of shooting, I got on the plane. And what occurred to me was two things. One is no one feels heard. I don't care what side of it you're on. You don't feel heard. There's no sense of dignity that others are treating you with dignity. No matter who you were, there was this victimhood yeah. that was permeating every culture in, in the area. And that we really aren't learning anything by doing this exercise of nationalism. We're really yeah, no. finding ourselves with, I mean, when you consider that, the, I mean, not to go too far into it, but the Middle East itself is a completely colonial construct yeah. of made up countries from colonial powers. And then all of a sudden you're a Jordanian and all of a sudden you're a Saudi when there was no such thing, you know, or the Iraqs of the world, you know, that were really totally different constructions under their own or under Ottoman steam, I should say. Yeah, well, so either. all of that, and I want to put one more layer on that, which is we have enough to worry about in this country alone with our treatment of indigenous people. That the idea that we can get on a high horse and talk about what rights other people should and shouldn't have and who's violating them when the suicide rate for teen indigenous people is five times the rate of, of, of other Canadians where they don't live as long, where they're beset yeah. with poverty, undrinkable water, uh, racism. And yet here we are going, you know, I think we need to be treated better. <laughs> just think oh my god what do you mean we need to be treated better no, we couldn't be better off at this point and we intermarry and we do whatever we want we do what we want look i mean we've you know i think part of the the panic that's uh seized the whole middle class in the past few years you know especially since the 2016 elections in the u.s is that all of a sudden all that stuff that we've got that we took for granted and in many cases treated with, you know, more than a little bit of contempt, we're suddenly in real danger of losing. And yeah. not just 
you know, white privilege, just the whole, any kind of privilege, uh, the whole way of life, you know, we, we've finally seen just how precarious it is that one idiot in the right place can basically destroy a world. And this, this is an ancient Jewish idea uh, <laughs> that, you know, you need to watch out for that sort of thing. And, you know, again, when people deal with each other and I, you know, before I, I came on here today, I listened to, uh, to your last podcast uh, with, with Sharon Green, with whom right. I actually shared an office at one time oh, cool. at the U of T. But um, Come Back but, for Me is the name of her book. Yeah, that's right. But you guys were talking about Martin Buber. Right. And I and thou. And yeah, the minute you start treating somebody like an it, like a member of a group that, you know, you might not like or you might like that group. But the minute you stop treating people as individuals with the same feelings and the same rights and the same problems as you, even though they might be on the other end of that problem, it becomes a lot harder to treat them badly. Yeah. Uh, but as long as it's like just some, you know, the Jews should know better and the Jews, blah, blah, blah. And what, you know, as if, you know, the Nazis were there to provide us with some kind of moral lesson. Right. Uh, and on the other side, you know, I'm not talking to him, you know, what do I need to talk to that Arab for? Right. He's an Arab. Well, yeah, you're going to get absolutely nowhere. So are um, you hopeful like in the that. end? Are you actually, do you, uh, your, as we get older? As we get older, I mean, you know, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> I sometimes, as, as I get older, I understand now why the Council of Old People, which I mocked and laughed at for a good 40 years, uh, was so valued in just about every culture that I know anything about. It's because eventually, as you confront, you know, the inevitable end to which we're all going to come, you get a much more pointed idea of what's important and what isn't. And it's unfortunately very often difficult to get that across either to younger people or to people who just don't want to look at it that way, that, you know, really a lot of this is completely self-defeating. And it benefits, it benefits only the people who have put themselves in a position to benefit from others being in a, in a position of strife or in a relationship of strife. Right. So we live in an, ex, uh, uh, an environment here of extractive capitalism, that you, you must extract resources at maximum profit and you must suppress wage demands from people and extract the most labor from them for the lowest price. Well, you know, when, when you have a right wing that considers uh, Eisenhower's social policies to be tantamount to, to, to communism or socialism, uh, you know, you've, you've got a problem. <laughs> uh, you know, he just wasn't that big a liberal. Uh, yeah. Yes, but he was aware of the military-industrial complex, which to this day runs America. I think there has been nine years in their history where they haven't been at war with someone. And and again, you know, one of the one of the tragedies of our own youth is we were all so busy, you know, 
stopping Vietnam, whether we lived in the U.S. or not, and getting stoned and smiling on our brother, that we didn't notice that at least up until that point, those years were the years of the greatest buildup of nuclear arms right. in American history. And we were all too distracted. Well, I uh, wouldn't be so hard on that. I, I think that it was an honest striving to release a generation which had a majority of the demographic at that point that was under 25. It's from this idea of falling into this meaningless material pursuit where they tried to be communal, where they tried to think of more universal ideas, where they tried to think of love, where they tried to do this. And there was a huge backlash to this idea. You know, once the white middle class, a young person was being told they were going to go to a war they weren't interested in fighting, they all rose up. But it, it, yeah. it all got lost. But I still think that there's a there was a striving to recreate the American image into something more pastoral, the way in Israel, the original Zionist uh, was a secular, and that the kibbutz yeah. and the labor movement and the social Zionism of the time was about sharing and caring for each other. And I have friends who still live on a kibbutz north of Tel Aviv, and we go to stay with them, and it's been privatized, you know? I mean, yeah, no, I know. That's... The biggest thing they have is a water park, you know? <laughs> You see, that's their big, their big money maker, and almost everybody works off the kibbutz now. You know, yeah. you can work there if you want, but there's always this thing of neoliberalism has had a profound effect, and the 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 left and the right both have vacated the idea of a spiritual center, that there is a, there are yeah, guiding well, principles in 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 a spiritual life. So the I and thou is a sacred relationship of listening from my heart to your heart and back. Yeah, We've lost that. We talk yeah, from here. Oh, totally. You know, I, I hate to quote St. Augustine about anything, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he kind of divided human motivations into two large categories. Uh, caritas, as he calls it in Latin, which is more like love, uh, uh, closer to agape and cupiditas, you know, cupidity greed, wanting stuff. Right. It's just, you know, the constant I gotta have, I gotta have. And, you know, there's an old old, anything by William Blake is old, but there's a William Blake picture uh, in, in one of his uh, lesser works, as it's generally classified, called The Gates of Paradise, where it's somebody standing at the bottom of a ladder. The ladder reaches up into the sky. There's nothing holding it up. And the ladder is pointing up to the sky, and it's like a night sky, so you can see the stars. The ladder just, it ends, but it's standing on its own. And the caption is, I want, I want. Right. Uh, and that's, I think, what has kind of taken over. And without some kind of countervailing uh, ideology is the wrong word, but power or force, whether that is religion or a simple commitment to you know some kind of ethics that you know something that is not uh there was an old old joke when i was a kid i, I grew up in alberta 
in in a smaller town. So I, I didn't have a large Jewish. Yeah, I didn't have a large Jewish community. Uh, I, always, I always say about cities like that, oh, another center of Yiddishkeit. Right. Well, hey. <laughs> so where's the last, you know, Chava Rosenfarb, the last important Yiddish novelist uh, who had been living in Montreal after the war. She, she was from Poland, but she finished her, she ended her life. She lived in Lethbridge for a number of wow. years. Wow. Because her, her daughter teaches at the university there. Uh, so, so it was a Lethbridge had this guy. weird kind of Yiddish fate, yeah. yeah. But people used to, you know, it was a joke from people a generation older than us uh, who had all served in one way or another during World War II that, you know, the motto of the RCAF back when, before they unified the forces was, you know, per aspera ad astra. So through difficulties up to the stars, the popular translation of this was I've got mine. So fuck you, Jack. Uh, <laughs> and as long as, you know, as long as that's your attitude, nobody's ever going to get anywhere because I, well, everybody's too what, busy stabbing each other in the back. Well, I spent a, a few years in retail politics and the politician is constantly driven away from, from ideals to customer service. Yeah, and and, and short-term customer service. I mean, uh, you know, not to be too specific in terms of what I think happens to whom, but I would say that the last liberal government had a leader in Kathleen Wynne who actually was talking about transportation plans, for instance, that were 15 years out that would have benefited everyone for 15 years. And people just said, I don't really give a crap about that. My hydro bill went out even because it had been artificially suppressed for so many years, they thought it was outrageous. Right. And then they, they just thought, well, screw these people. They've had enough troubles. They're out because they're not giving me what I want. And we want more for less constantly. And it's making us more unhappy. This pandemic has been in some ways a curative, a, a bit of a slap in the back of the head of wake up. Yeah. I mean, no, the yeah, spiritual no, journey is, yeah. yeah, the spiritual journey is about waking up. That's the constant message of every religion. You know, the shofar blowing, the ram's horn blowing at the holiday is literally to wake you up. Yeah. The Buddhist philosophy of enlightenment is to be awake, to be present in, in the moment. You know, the Hindu Vedanta, this is the only thing that is real, this present moment. So when we talk about these things, we're not awake. We're somnambulists. We're just walk, dream walking yeah, no. through this life. But all yeah. of a sudden, all of those things that had us driving from here to there to there to here to see this, to do that, to get to this meeting, to go see the therapist, to get to the doctor, to you know find some groceries, to do the, all of a sudden it's over. The, 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 it's a sham. I, I'm interviewing you. You didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to go anywhere. We're just talking to each other. And it's really, I'm very interested because this is a long-term situation about how we will come out the other end. Will we go running back to what we had? Is that what human nature has become? Or will we actually stop and look at it and go, I didn't need to live like that. And I don't need all this. I just, I just want to be around people. I just want to be around this creation. I just want to be within it. My heart hopes it'll happen, but yeah. I, I worry for us. I, 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 as I get older, I deeply worry for us. Yeah, no, I mean, I I don't know, obviously. I don't know either that it will happen. I think it'll happen to some people, but just look at the numbers of people who, again, you know, what you were talking about earlier, I'm not putting on a mask. Nobody's telling me what to do. Yeah. I mean, I had I was talking to an old friend of mine, probably 
one of the people I know whom I have known longest uh, in my life. And he lives in New York now. He's a bit older than I am. Uh, so he's in his early 70s. I was talking to him, in fact, just before Rosh Hashanah on the phone. And, of course, you, know, you talk to anybody and the pandemic comes up. And he said to me, uh, you know, I had it. I said, really, you know, and you're okay now? He said, yeah, you know, he's got some lingering after effects, but he's clearly, you know, he's obviously, he's not dead. Right. But we're talking, he's like, yeah, well, I think they're really exaggerating the dangers of this because, <laughs> like, I'm not dead. And, <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to wear a mask. And he right. said, he said, I'm 72 years old. I'm tired of people telling me what to do. Right. And I said, I said, but, uh, yeah, you're an Orthodox Jew. Like, and it, again, at the ex, uh, fairly, you know, ultra Orthodox is, is probably closer to it. I said, you, somebody's always telling you what <laughs> to do. You don't do anything without asking some guy what you're supposed to do. And he tells you because yeah. he's, you know, he's a rabbi. He's licensed as it were, you know, that's what a rabbi does. That's, that's a rabbi's real job. Which is why this podcast rabbi. is called not that kind of rabbi. Yeah. yeah. It's not to make a speech or tell you the page number. It's not even, no, no, but they look for, go to the Rebbe, the Rebbe will, or the bait Dean, yeah. the, the court or, will decide whatever any, it is. Or yeah. any rabbi, you know, what's I dropped, you know, two, Two drops of milk fell into the chicken soup as right, I was right. moving a thing over the pot. What do I do? Can I eat the soup? What do I do with the pot? Does the pot need to be re-koshered? Right. Can such a pot be koshered, you know, et cetera? And the rabbi will ask you the appropriate questions, which in this case, even I could give you, you know, is what's the volume of soup to, to milk, et cetera, et cetera. And he'll right, tell you right. what to do. I say, you know, you but he do doesn't this. want to wear a mask. Yeah, I say you do this for everything. I said, ask some, ask the rabbi, ask some rabbi if you should wear a mask. He said, well, some rabbis say yes, some rabbis say no. I said, yeah, but who gives you the authority to decide which rabbi you're going to go to? Right. Uh, if 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 you're not if you're not a rabbi, but you know, as long as that kind of I don't feel like doing this because it makes me moderately uncomfortable. You know, I. I that's not, I will plug myself. A number of years ago, I wrote a book called How to Be a Mensch and Not a Schmuck. Uh, and one of the things, one of the examples I give in the book is you're on your way, you know, you're a good kid. You stay home all the time and you practice your violin and you do your homework while those bombs are outside playing baseball at, at, in the vacant lot at the corner. You're on your way to the library one day with your overdue book, and there's eight people there, and they're all like your basic group of, you know, whatever, friends, classmates. There's eight people there. They need a ninth person for that ball game, so they'll have a full team. Inside of classical Judaism, it's like you're in that position. It's not even a question. Unless not going to the library is going to cause you to lose your life or your livelihood forever, you are obliged to join that baseball game because nobody can play without you. And until people sort of realize that the, 
it's you know you're not the center of the universe you're well, important yeah. but you're no more important than anybody else so or as important as else. you are to yourself the guy that you just called an asshole is just as important to himself etc and maybe he is an asshole but you're never yeah, going to convince. You'll never convince them of that. No, so and, and next, there's no and, point and, to argue. And next Tuesday, in the middle of something, you'll be the asshole. You'll be the exact part of it being a human. You'll being. be. The, it's like driving. That's where forgiveness comes from. It's yeah. like your holiness is not the point of the exercise. Your yeah. humanness is the point. Exactly. Of the but it's like driving. You know, nobody can drive except for you. <laughs> Right? Well, everybody else, I, nobody else knows what the hell they're doing. Everybody knows this. Eckhart Tolle, uh, which I just reread because uh, at first I dismissed him as sort of, oh, he's just sort of watered down Buddhism. I get it. Uh, but I reread one of his books and there's some lovely things in there and the power of what is, the isness mm -hmm. of things and how we refuse to accept the isness of things. Like we refuse to accept the science around the climate. We refuse to accept the science around the, the, the virus. But the virus doesn't care if we have an ideology. The climate doesn't care if we have an ideology. It's going to just play itself out. And we have to get ourselves in a position of humility to be able to position ourselves for the right action in what should be a, a, a surround of awe and wonder of, the, of what creation is. I, I got to go. I, gotta, I, want, I could talk to you forever, but I got to go. Yeah. Uh, Michael Wex is the author of uh, many books, seven, or he's not sure if it's eight. Seven, eight. Nah, who knows? Rhapsody and Schmaltz, Born to Fetch, How to Be a, a Mensch, Not a Schmuck. Uh, all of them are well worth uh, looking up and reading. Uh, Mr. Wex, uh, what a pleasure to talk to you. I haven't uh, spoken to you. And to you, you Ralph, it's fun. I haven't talked to you. As you just said, I haven't talked to you in a long time, but it was great. It was well, I, I, I keep and, in touch. Yeah, and you too. And uh, be safe. And uh, I hope that you and yours are safe and well in, and have a sweet new year. You also. And the same to you, Ralph, and to yours. Thank you. I'm Ralph Benmergi. This is not that kind of rabbi. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do it through my website. I do spiritual counseling as well. I'm an ordained spiritual director, and I do counseling with people one-on-one -on -one and in groups. I do aging to saging workshops as well. Uh, my website is Kavana, which is Hebrew for intention. What is your intention in this life? And it's spelled in this case, since it's in English, K-A-V-A-N-A-H dot C-A. So you can go there if you're interested in any of that. And there's also a Facebook page for Not That Kind of Rabbi if you have comments or suggestions and people you'd like me to start, uh, speak with. So you take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And uh, we'll see you soon on Not That Kind of Rabbi. Bye-bye.
this podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.